your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. Our passage today is the very familiar story of Zacchaeus. So we've got to do it, right? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree. And he said, Zacchaeus, you come down, for I'm going to your house today. For I'm going to your house today. Awesome. Good job. We're having an old school Sunday anyway, right? Might as well, a perfect Sunday to sing that. If I, we didn't sing it up front, we, we'd be singing it in your head the whole sermon. So go ahead and just get it out of the way now and be done with it, right? That's a great song. Tells the story of Zacchaeus, obviously, but it really only tells the first half of it. It only gets us to the, the first five verses. And it doesn't even really get to the best part. So if you have a gift to write songs, maybe you can write the second verse to get verses 6 through 10 in there to really get the, the full essence of what this story is about. Now, I love this story because it so beautifully illustrates the gospel. The details between Zacchaeus' life and your own life are going to be very, very different, right? But the gospel thread that runs through Zacchaeus' life is the same gospel thread that runs through yours. So by looking at God's work of salvation in Zacchaeus, we can understand and appreciate even better God's work of salvation in us. So let's read the story, Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, I have thought this is such a rich story. There's so many ways that we could approach it. The the best way that I could devise this week or think of through this week is just to kind of walk through the passage. Just go verse by verse and just illustrate some things as we go along. But really, as we're kind of walking through this and seeing what the Lord did in Zacchaeus' own life, just to kind of think about how our own story, to think about our own testimony and what God has done for us in his work of salvation in our own lives. So we're going to begin in verse 1 with the context for this story. We see that Jesus, it says, is entering Jericho. He entered Jericho. He enters Jericho because Jesus is actually on his way to Jerusalem. We've discussed this multiple times. This is really bringing to a close. Next week really brings to the end this second major section of the Gospel of Luke where it begins in chapter 9, verse 51, where Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. He was focused on getting to Jerusalem. Why? Because that's where he is going to fulfill his ministry. He's going to fulfill his messianic mission. He is going to suffer He is going to die. He is going to rise again, all to redeem his people and to establish the kingdom of God. His final stop before arriving in Jerusalem is here in the city of Jericho, which was a sizable town about 18 miles to the east of Jerusalem. It was situated on the uh, western side of the Jordan River, just north of the Dead Sea. I actually have a map up there. I think you can see Jericho. Where's my pointer? So Jericho is right there. You can see it's right just to the east of Jerusalem, right there on the western edge of the Jordan River and right north of the Dead Sea. 
As Jesus approached Jericho, as Adam reminded us in the call to worship, as he's coming into the city, he encounters a blind man. And that blind man, when he hears the commotion of the crowd, uh, who is just, again, just is, seemed to be unusual for the blind man, when he hears that it's actually Jesus of Nazareth who is coming through, the blind man cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And there, Jesus performs that miracle on the blind man. He, he heals him of his blindness. He gives him his sight so that he can see. And as we saw last week, that miracle both demonstrated once again that Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus was doing the works that were prophesied in the Old Testament about the Messiah. But it's also really illustrating the nature of his mission. Jesus came to do more than to give sight to the blind. He came to do more than just simply heal the sick of their infirmities. These things illustrate that God had sent Jesus to make all humanity well. Jesus came to save sinners. He came to make us whole. Now, after healing the blind man, Jesus continues on into Jericho. But as he passes through the city, we're going to discover that Jesus intends to stay there for some unspecified amount of time. He is going to continue his messianic ministry there in Jericho. And it's at this point that we're introduced to Zacchaeus in verse 2. What do we learn about Zacchaeus? Well, we see in verse 2 that he was a man. His name, Zacchaeus, indicates that he was Jewish. Zacchaeus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Zakai, which means righteous one or innocent one, pure one. So he was Jewish. That's important, I think, to this story as well. He's also, we're told, a chief tax collector. And as chief tax collector, Zacchaeus was responsible for overseeing the collection of all tax revenue in the city of Jericho. Now, I showed you the map a minute ago of Jericho. You can flash that map. I think there's another one up there. Yes. Jericho was a strategic point for the collection of customs and tolls and taxes. In fact, it was quite a, a, a moneymaker. It's an important tax center for the Roman Empire there in Judea. As you can see, it's, it's location there right at the, on the western bank of the Jordan River, it was actually a main, there was a main road, a main trade route, or a, uh, a main highway that came through Jericho that connected Jerusalem on the western side to the lands of the east on the eastern side. So if you're going to cross over the Jordan River, there are probably multiple points along the river that you can cross, but Jericho is one of the easiest places to cross over. You will remember in the Old Testament, right, when, when the Joshua led the children of Israel across the Jordan River, they crossed over there at Jericho. It was the first battle as they were uh, going to conquer the, the promised land. So this was a natural place for people to travel through, and so it became a natural place to collect customs and tolls, especially from the merchants who were coming from the east on the way to Jerusalem. Because of the amount of traffic that was passing through Jericho, this became a, a strategic point for Rome to collect uh, tax revenue. It was an excessive uh, an excessive amount of tax revenue could be generated right there in Jericho. But the Romans were, the only, were not the only ones that were benefiting from Jericho's rich tax base. The tax collectors were benefiting as well. And here's how that worked. The Roman officials who were responsible for the collection of tax revenue would actually contract that work out to locals. They would contract it out to local Jewish men in the region. Potential tax collectors then could bid on jobs by estimating the amount of tax revenue that they could collect. So just for the sake of just round numbers, let's say that a tax collector thinks he can collect $10,000. He'll put that bid in. If another one thinks they can collect $15,000, and that's the highest bid, the Romans would probably go after the one that would say that they would collect $15,000. They kind of had an idea of what they could collect. So then, once you put your bid in, that was pretty much your quota. That's what you owed to Rome whenever taxes were due. Now, whatever tax revenue a tax collector could collect over and above what he owed to Rome, he could profit for himself. So let's say he owes Rome $15,000. If he can collect 25000 he only is obligated to pay Rome 15000 He can keep a handsome $10,000 for himself. So you can see this was a very lucrative line of work. The ability to pocket huge financial profits then led to very unscrupulous tactics. And since the whole system had the backing of the Roman government, there was very little recourse against fraud and abuse of power. Now, as the chief tax collector of Jer in Jericho, Zacchaeus was the administra administrator for all tax revenue collected there. He oversaw the other tax collectors in their work, 
and took a percentage of what they collected for himself. So now it's not just one person, it's, it's multiple. I don't know how many there were, but he was collecting a percentage, and probably because he was just as unscrupulous as they, he's collecting a hefty percentage for himself. So if a tax collector could become wealthy, Zacchaeus taking a percentage of a cadre of underling tax collectors could also become extremely, extremely wealthy. Now, if the upside to Zacchaeus' occupation here was wealth, the downside of his occupation was his social standing. Tax collectors were quite despised among the Jews, especially religiously devout Jews. They reviled tax collectors for at least two reasons. First, Jewish tax collectors in their mind worked for the enemy, right? The Jews hated Rome. They hated Rome's provincial control over their lives. They saw the Romans as usurpers and oppressors. So the fact that the Jewish tax collectors aided the Romans in their oppression made them traitors of the highest order. Secondly, Jewish tax collectors cheated people out of large sums of money to their own extravagant financial advantage. Because of their unscrupulous character, the Jews viewed tax collectors as reprobate as thieves, Murderers, extortioners, adulterers, prostitutes, sinners, and even Gentiles. This is how the general population perceives Zacchaeus in verse 7 when they say he is a man who is a sinner. He is a lowly tax collector, despised, reviled by the general population. So there was a high cost, a high social cost, to being a tax collector. In fact, one writer says that a Jew who collected taxes was disqualified as a witness in court. He was expelled from the synagogue and he was a cause of disgrace to his family. The touch of a tax collector could render an entire house unclean. Jews were forbidden to receive money and even alms from tax collectors because revenue collected from taxes was deemed to be robbery. So obviously tax collectors were alienated from general society and therefore they were associated together with other despised and and rejected people in CD company. If you wanted friends, you had to hang out with those in the low places, right? The Garth Brooks type of song. I got friends in low places, tax collectors. That's what they were, that's who they were hanging around with. So, on the one hand, Zacchaeus' wealth permitted him a very luxurious lifestyle, but on the other hand, his reputation severely limited his social opportunities. He was a reprobate. He was an outcast. He was persona non grata. From a first century Jewish mindset, there was absolutely no hope for a man like him. Zacchaeus is a condemned sinner, most worthy of God's wrath. That's all about to change through a divinely ordained encounter between Zacchaeus and Jesus. And we see that encounter in verses 3 through 6. Much like the blind man in the previous passage, Zacchaeus seeks out Jesus. Did you see that in verse 3? And he, Zacchaeus, was seeking to see who Jesus was. He was seeking him out. We don't know what his motivation was for wanting to see Jesus. Is he like the blind man, hearing the clamor of the crowd and wanting to see what's going on? Had he heard of Jesus' reputation and wanted to see maybe Jesus perform some miracle and, and, and witness that spectacular moment? Had he heard something of what Jesus was teaching? Something about the gospel, something about the kingdom, and wanted to hear more for himself? It's, it's hard to know. But we do know, what we do know is that Zacchaeus seeks out Jesus. And the word seek there means to search out diligently. It means to to look for in a very earnest way. It's the word used to describe back in chapter 15 of the woman who searched her entire house for the lost coin, right? She went seeking for it. She searched diligently. She turned her house upside down looking for this coin that had been lost. It's the idea of behind the, the shepherd in the parable of the lost sheep also in chapter 15. When the shepherd leaves the 99 in the fold and goes out looking for the sheep that has gone astray. Zacchaeus here is diligently seeking to see Jesus, to get a glimpse of him. Again, either to assuage his 
his curiosity or perhaps to get some kind of benefit from him. But Zacchaeus faces some obstacles to getting to Jesus, right? The crowd has, has assembled. He could not, he could not uh, get to Jesus on account of the crowd, it says in verse 3. The other problem is the fact that he is short. He's small in stature. So even if he does get to the crowd or through the crowd, he can't get really to a place where he can see Jesus. It's like, it's like getting, if you've ever been to Disney World before, you want to see the parade and you're there, you're kind of one of the last ones to assemble for the parade. And you're kind of in the back, so you have to like stretch over the, you just sit on your tippy toes, try to see the parade. I remember when I, the kids were younger, I could put them on my shoulder so they could see, but I'm like looking around to see, you know, I can't really see because all the people that are assembled in front of me, so short, well, Zacchaeus was short too, and he, he couldn't see Jesus on the basis of his shortness and because of the assembly of the crowd. And so Zacchaeus does something interesting. It says in verse 4 that he ran on ahead of the crowd to a place where he was sure Jesus was going to pass by, probably through the main thoroughfare of town. And he sees a sycamore tree, and he climbs up into that tree so that he can see Jesus as he passes by. Now, a sycamore tree is very much like a live oak tree. That's probably the best example that we have, best parallel that we have to our own culture, right? Live oak trees typically have shorter trunks. Their branches, you know, branch out nice, wide lateral branches. Have you ever been over to uh, Lake Ella? Some of the live oak trees by the lake there, they grow out so, so long that the kids like to climb up there and hang out on the very thick branches. That's kind of probably what Zacchaeus was was it was going to be doing here. He's able to, to climb up, navigate through this tree, and he's able to get out maybe on a limb where, where there's good support. He runs on ahead so that he can he can see Jesus. But to do this, to run on ahead and to climb up a tree is very undignified in this culture. So Zacchaeus is sort of humbling himself, if you will, out of his excitement, out of his desire to see Jesus, that he's willing to to undignify himself and run on ahead and climb up a tree just so that he can see who Jesus was. He's seeking to see who Jesus was. He's willing to make a fool of himself just to see Jesus. Well, his gamble pays off. Verse 5, Jesus passes by that way, and Zacchaeus gets to see Jesus. But Zacchaeus gets more than he bargained for. He doesn't just get to see Jesus. Jesus initiates an encounter with Zacchaeus. He looks up in the tree when he passes by that way. He, he sees Zacchaeus. And in, in verse 5, he, he orders him to hurry and come down. Come down out of that tree, Zacchaeus. He gives him the reason why. You know, also in verse 5, he says, For I must stay at your house today. The word stay there in the Greek language would indicate that Jesus intends to lodge with Zacchaeus. It intends that he's going to, to be in Jericho for some time. And, and for as long as he's going to stay in Jericho, he wants to lodge at Zacchaeus' house. Jesus is telling Zacchaeus, I want, I want to be a guest in your home. Now, on the one hand, that would obligate Zacchaeus to provide for all of Jesus' needs. So this is one way in which Jesus would have his needs met. Zacchaeus would provide for Jesus. But it will also be an incredible honor for Zacchaeus to host someone of Jesus' reputation. Again, remember that tax collectors are outcasts. No one wants, nobody of any sort of social dignity would want to have any kind of association with Zacchaeus. So for Jesus, of his repu- a man of his reputation would want to come and stay in Zacchaeus' house. That's quite a remarkable thing. It would have been, have been an incredible honor for Zacchaeus. Notice also that Jesus gives this order, this command to Zacchaeus with a sense of, of, of urgency. There's a sense of immediacy here. He says, today, I'm, for I must stay at your house today. And really in the Greek, the, the Greek um, text, the word today is in the emphatic position. For today, I must stay at your house. Jesus here again is emphasizing the immediacy and the urgency of what he wants Zacchaeus to do. Don't dally. Don't fiddle-faddle around. Come down out of that tree. Go to your house. Make ready because I'm coming over to your house. I'm going to be your guest. So for Jesus, this is a matter of the highest priority. And we also see that communicated in the word must. 
for I must. The word literally in Greek means necessity. It is necessary. This is a matter of highest priority, a matter of greatest urgency. In fact, in Luke's writings, both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, the word must usually carries the sense not just of necessity, but divine necessity. In other words, God requires that Jesus stay as a key as his home in order to fulfill God's purpose, in order to fulfill God's mission for Jesus. Jesus must do this. He must go to Zacchaeus' house because this is what God commands for him. This is God's will for Jesus. So this command is not optional. Not for Jesus because he must do God's will and not for Zacchaeus because God's mission is being applied specifically to Zacchaeus. Jesus' lodging at Zacchaeus' house is divinely required so that God may fulfill his redemptive purposes through Jesus, both for Zacchaeus and for all the others that will be in his house, who will be saved as a result of the gospel message. And that is how Zacchaeus responds to this order in verse 6. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Zacchaeus obeys not just with, an obe- with a, a, a necessary obedience, but with a joyful obedience. In fact, I think it's interesting that Luke uses the same words that Jesus has just spoken to describe Zacchaeus' obedience, right? In verse 5, Jesus said to Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. In verse 6, what did Zacchaeus do? Exactly what Jesus said. He hurried and he came down. Luke is narrating that for us using Jesus' exact words. So Zacchaeus here is being faithful. He's being obedient to what Jesus has commanded him. But again, notice he also comes down joyfully and receives Jesus joyfully. The word receive there means to receive with hospitality. In fact, it reminds me, the same word is used in uh, Luke chapter 10 when uh, Luke tells the story of Mary and Martha. And Martha, you might remember, received or welcomed Jesus into her home. And she goes through this elaborate preparation of this meal to provide for Jesus' needs. But what I think is interesting, interesting contrast there is how does Martha respond to Jesus to this hospitality, right? She's complaining. She's frustrated. Mary's not helping me. There's all this work to do. She's overwhelmed. She seems very unjoyful about it. But Zacchaeus welcomes and receives Jesus with hospitality into his home with great joy. He receives him joyfully. Again, this word appears 18 times in Luke's writings, both the Gospel and Acts. And in 14 of those occasions, this word joy is associated with with salvation. Salvation and joy go together. So Zacchaeus' joyful reception of Jesus may have started with the honor and privilege of hosting Jesus in his home, but it foreshadows the greater joy, the joy of salvation that Jesus is bringing to Zacchaeus. Jesus' association and desire for fellowship with Zacchaeus is a matter of great joy for Zacchaeus, but it's a matter of great consternation for the, those who are in the crowd or those who have taken notice of what is happening here. Notice there is this popular objection to what Jesus is doing in verse 7. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Now, it's interesting here that Luke does not tell us who the they are, right? Verse 7, and when they saw it, we don't know who the they are. If we're reading within the context of the story, the they would grammatically refer back to the crowd. We understand how they would be appalled at the prospect of Jesus becoming a guest of a despised tax collector, right? We assume the crowd is gathering around Jesus because they are enamored with him. They are intrigued by him. They are, in the last uh, chapter, last verse of the chapter, they glorified God, they gave praise to God when they saw Jesus heal the blind man. There's great excitement about that. Now this man goes to this house of this tax collector, not just the tax collector, the chief tax collector, the most corrupt of all of them. And they're all bent out of shape about it. But notice that the they sound very much like the Pharisaic critics of Jesus. They grumbled, it says in verse 7. 
That word, grumbled, appears only one other time in the New Testament. It's back in Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Different situation, different context, but they seem almost identical, don't they? The word that appears in 19 verse, chapter 19, verse 7, with regard to Zacchaeus, is the same word they apply to Jesus back in 15, verses 1 and 2. The Pharisees and scribes, they complained about Jesus associating with tax collectors, just as what Jesus is doing here. In a very similar context, you, Luke uses a related word. The word grumbled is actually here a compound word. The most basic form of the word appears in chapter 5, verses 29 and 30, to describe the reaction of the Pharisees and scribes to Jesus' association with tax collectors. And Levi, or Matthew, who was a tax collector, Jesus had called him in the previous verse to come be his disciple. Levi made him, Jesus, a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So the, whoever this they is here, find it reprehensible. They are create, not creating, they are attracting to themselves the same kind of attitude that the Pharisees and scribes had toward Jesus. How could Jesus be the guest of such a renowned sinner? They emphasized their disgust with Jesus by putting the word sinner in the emphatic position in Greek. A man who is a sinner. This sinner, we could say. This is the one you're going to go home and be the guest of? How can Jesus associate with a sinful tax collector like Zacchaeus? It blows their mind. It's beyond all comprehension for them. And so they're excoriating Jesus here for taking up lodging at Zacchaeus' home. But in contrast to the crowd's disgust over Jesus' fellowship with Zacchaeus, notice that Zacchaeus shows the fruit of fellowship with Jesus. He shows the transformation that fellowship with Jesus brings. Jesus has brought transformational change to his life. In fact, verse 8 really sounds like a confession of repentance, right? And behold, Zacchaeus stood. The idea of standing there is almost like taking a stand, making a confession, right? Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. So what is Zacchaeus doing here? He is, he is promising to give half of his goods to the poor. The word goods there refers to all of his possessions. Zacchaeus is promising, he's not just promising 50% of his income. Next paycheck, Lord, I'm giving you 50%. I'm giving you 50% to the poor and every paycheck after that. No, he's saying all the goods, everything that I have right now, 50% of it I give to the poor. Now again, Zacchaeus is not obligating himself to some provision of the Jewish law. We don't have any indication here that Jesus asked Zacchaeus to do this or commanded him in any way to do this. It seems that he is doing this of his own free will, that this is of his own, this is his own response to what Jesus has been declaring to him and teaching him while he is in his house. Zacchaeus seems to have a a moment of reflection, right? His encounter with Jesus has given him an understanding of, of who he is, of his, of his present situation. He has an understanding of, your, of the need of proper stewardship of his earthly resources. He seems to understand the reality of, of treasure in heaven. He seems to have a, an understanding here of God's concern for the poor. Again, going back to a, something that Jesus said in chapter, Luke chapter 16, verse 13, we see this kind of modeled in Zacchaeus' own life. No servant, he says, Jesus says, can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. 
these words seem to, Zacchaeus seems to take these words to heart. We see a, a change of heart through a change in his behavior, in what he does with his money, with his possessions. He understands he cannot serve God and continue to serve himself, serving money by accumulating all this wealth by deceptive means. And so he divests half of what he has, half of his belongings, and he exercises proper stewardship by giving it to the poor. This is his way of wholeheartedly serving God. In a sense, I think Zacchaeus' giving of his resources, of his possessions to the poor, is an, is an example of a sort of a free will offering or a thanksgiving offering. It reflects a, a changed heart. He is giving these, these things to the poor, again, not out of obligation, but out of thankfulness to God for what he has received from Christ. He is willing to give of his possessions to steward well what he has received in order to honor God and to advance his purposes. He also makes another interesting promise in verse 8 when he says, And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And the word, the Greek word there, if, indicate, the grammar indicates that it's not an uncertainty. I'll go through and think about this. I'm not sure if I have or not. The way this, this comes across in the Greek is that if I have defrauded anyone, and I certainly have, this is an admission of guilt on Zacchaeus' part. He has defrauded other people. And therefore, then, he promises restitution. But he doesn't just promise restitution. He promises a fourfold restitution, right? I restore it fourfold. Now, according to the Old Testament law in Leviticus chapter 15, verse 16, or sorry, Leviticus chapter 5, verse 16, Leviticus chapter 6, verse 5, and Numbers chapter 5, verse 7, a person making voluntary restitution was required to pay back the amount stolen plus 20%. So I'm going to use this example. Tim's not here, so I can pick on Tim. I'm, Tim's not here. He's out of town. I'm going to go to his house, and I'm going to pick 100 peaches off his peach tree. All right? I go home, take those peaches, and before I can even begin to, like, bite into them, I come under conviction. Man, I shouldn't have stolen these peaches from Tim. So I wait till he comes back home, and I go back to his house. I say, Tim, I stole these peaches from your peach tree. If I am going to be obedient to the Old Testament law, I'm not going to just simply give him his 100 peaches back. I've got to give 20% in addition to that. So I have to give him now the 100 that I stole from him plus 20 more peaches. I go to Publix and buy peaches or whatever. Come back, and I give Tim 120 peaches that I stole off his peach tree. That was what the Old Testament law requires. Obviously, Zacchaeus is blowing that out of the water, right? In fact, he seems to be setting a higher standard for himself that might be the most excessive standard for restitution in the Old Testament, which comes in Leviticus chapter 22, verse 1, when you steal livestock. So, uh, so it says in Leviticus 22, verse 1, if a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. So this seems to be the highest standard of restitution in the Old Testament. If a person steals an animal he then, and he kills it, and it's discovered, he then has to make restitution four or five times depending upon what the animal is. So again, let me use Tim as an example. He's out of town. Going to go to his house. I don't know if he has chickens yet or not. Let's assume he has chickens. And I go and steal one of his chickens. Right? And I take it back to the house and I butcher it and I prepare it for dinner, and it's absolutely delicious, right? But when Tim gets home, he sees on his security camera that I've gone into the chicken coop and I've stolen one of his chickens, and he confronts me about it. Then, according to the Old Testament law, I have to make restitution. And I'd have to go and get him another chicken, not just simply one chicken, but four chickens to pay for the one that I sold, okay? That's the fourfold restitution. Now, Jesus does not command, it doesn't seem, from what we have in the text here, Jesus does not command Zacchaeus to make this restitution, nor does Zacchaeus seem to see his restitution as obedience to the law. But his restitution is evidence of his repentance. Obviously, he's come under conviction that he has defrauded people, that he has dishonored God by stealing money from people unethically, using unscrupulous tactics. He wants to do right. 
He wants to honor God. And so he goes and he finds those people whom he has defrauded, which would probably be no small thing for a tax collector. If this is part of your business, if this is the way you conduct your business, I'm sure Zacchaeus would have had to take a lot of time to think through who he had defrauded. But he's willing to go through that. He's willing to make that commitment, not as an act of penance, not as a way of making himself right before God, but out of a changed heart. He's doing this as a sign or a symbol of his inward repentance. God has been gracious to him to bring salvation to his house, and now he wants to live in a way that reflects God's character and ethic, which is how we should all live, right? If we've come to a knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it doesn't mean that it just simply does something for us in our spirit, in our soul. It's going to have ramifications for how we live life on a general basis. Everything that we do as Christians, we want to imitate the character of God, the ethic of God, in accordance with the changed heart that we now have. So this is really a statement of repentance, a confession of repentance. Lord, this is what I'm going to do because you've changed my heart. And then Jesus provides some commentary here on all that's happening. Verses 9 and 10, he says, Jesus said to him, he's speaking to Zacchaeus, but notice that how he frames what he says is really meant for everyone who's there, even for those who have criticized Jesus for coming into Zacchaeus' house. Today, he says, salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. God has brought salvation to Zacchaeus and to his house. The word salvation there in verse 9 is the noun form of the verb save. It's translated as made well back in chapter 18, verse 42. To remind ourselves, this is after the... Uh, this is as Jesus, after Jesus heals the blind man. It says, Jesus said to the blind man, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. That's the verb form. Salvation, the noun form, is very similar. Jesus made the blind man well by reversing his blindness and giving him the capacity to see. But this is also what Jesus is speaking about with regard to Zacchaeus. Again, Zacchaeus has no infirmity, he has no illness, no disability. He's not blind, he's not sick in any way. There's nothing physically wrong with him. But what Jesus does for Zacchaeus is the same thing he has done for the blind man. He has made him well. See, this is where the crowd was right. Zacchaeus was a sinner. Not because he was a tax collector, but because he was a human being. And certainly in his tax collecting, he sinned out of his own sinful, corrupt heart. Jesus came to do more than simply bring physical wellness to the blind man or anybody else. Jesus came to save sinners of their sin. He came to save Zacchaeus from God's judgment by dealing with his sin problem. This is exactly why I think we need to understand that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. As Jesus stops along the way, he's doing things to show what ultimately he would do when he arrives in Jerusalem by dying on the cross from our sins. As Jesus dies on the cross, he is saving Zacchaeus, he is saving the blind man, he is saving you and me. He saves us from death and he gives us eternal life. But notice that salvation has not simply come to Zacchaeus, it has also come to all who are in his house. In the book of Acts, the reference to house typically refers to those who live, everyone who lives in that house, spouse, children, extended relative, extended family, slaves. And typically when the gospel message came to a person's house, those who were in the house were also saved, so more than one person was saved. But let's consider, too, again, Zacchaeus' life situation. That because of the social ostracism that he faced, Zacchaeus associated with other tax collectors and sinful people. Those people, we don't know if Zacchaeus was alienated from his extended family. He probably didn't have much family. He may have had a spouse, may have had children, don't know. But he probably had other tax collectors in his home. He probably had other sinners in his home. Those are the people that he associated with. Again, going back to chapter 5, when Jesus called Levi to become his disciple, what did Levi do? He went home, he prepared a meal, 
he invited his friends, other tax collectors, other sinful people to come and share this meal with Jesus. And Jesus taught them the gospel there and many were saved. I imagine something similar is probably happening here as well. Jesus probably proclaimed the gospel and taught about the kingdom of God to other reprobates. And it's very likely that some, maybe even many, responded in faith to that message as Zacchaeus had. Today, salvation has come to this house. This is the gospel. Jesus brings salvation to sinful people. Jesus also says that this salvation has come to Zacchaeus and to his house is in fulfillment to the promise that God had made to Abraham. He says, for he all, since he also is a son of Abraham. You remember the story of Abraham? That God had set Abraham apart as the patriarch of a people that would be exclusively God's people, the nation Israel. And through that people, God would send one to bring salvation to that nation, to that people, and to the, all the rest of the nations of the world. And so as a son of Abraham, as a Jew... Zacchaeus was a descendant of Abraham. The promise that God made to Abraham applied to Zacchaeus. But it wasn't simply because Zacchaeus was a biological descendant of Abraham. Zacchaeus needed to imitate Abraham's faith in order to become an heir of the promise. This is an important teaching in the New Testament. That those who are children of Abraham are not so necessarily by biological descent but by spiritual descent, that we are children of Abraham, we are sons of Abraham, if we imitate the faith of Abraham, the man of faith. Galatians chapter 3, verses 7 and 9. Paul says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So, Zacchaeus wasn't excluded from salvation just because he was a tax collector. But the promise was given and applied to him if he would imitate Abraham's faith and trust in God through Christ. And that's exactly what happens here. Zacchaeus embraces, he applies the promise that was made to Abraham to himself by faith. Now, Jesus then explains sort of his larger mission in verse 10 that what happens to Zacchaeus illustrates the larger mission of Jesus. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Again, think of how this plays out in Zacchaeus' own life. Jesus came to Jericho for what purpose? At least two purposes, to heal the blind man and to save Zacchaeus. But this one specific incident illustrates on a much larger scale what Jesus has done for all of God's people. Notice the word lost. Jesus came, he says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The lost refers there to the unsaved. We've been singing about them this morning. Having God's heart for the lost. The need of taking the gospel to the lost. The word lost there is a reference to the unsaved. To those whose relationship with God has been broken because of sin. To those who stand condemned because of their sin. Those who are destined to suffer eternally under God's wrath. It's interesting to me that the word lost actually in the Greek descends or comes from, derives from a word which means to destroy. The lost are those who are spiritually headed for eternal destruction because of their sin. Hebrews 10.31 reminds us that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. There's no Jesus. There's no Messiah. If there's no redemptive mission, Zacchaeus and all of us would be lost. We would be condemned under our sin. We would be destined for eternal destruction. But why did Jesus come? Why did God send Jesus into the world? To seek and to save the lost. That is the good news of the gospel. Isaiah 53, 6 reminds us of what we are spiritually apart from Christ. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We're all like sheep. We're all lost. We're all wandering. We're all walking away from Jesus, running from Jesus, living in our rebellion, going after the things of this world. But God sent Jesus into the world to bear our sins so that we might be found 
Peter taking on this idea from Isaiah 53. And 1 Peter 2.25 says, For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That's what Jesus has done. He came to bring the lost to himself. This is what he was sent to do. This is how he fulfills his messianic mission. Jesus saves us from God's eternal wrath. Again, we deserve God's wrath because of our sins. But Jesus came to bear our sins for us. This is why He must go to Jerusalem. This is why He must die on the cross. By His death, our sins are forgiven and we are reconciled to God and we no longer have to fear His wrath. God's wrath has been averted from us because Jesus did all that was necessary to pay the penalty for our sin. Now instead, because our sin has been dealt with us, God calls us into a glorious relationship with Himself. We come to know and abide with the living God in whom we have life. Jesus came to save. And He has done all that is necessary for us so that we might be saved. We contribute nothing. And that is that Jesus initiates this work of salvation. It's interesting that Jesus includes seeking with saving. For the Son of Man didn't just come to save the lost. He came to seek and save the lost. Now remember... Back in chapter 19, verse 3, back in verse 3, Zacchaeus went seeking out after Jesus, right? He was seeking to see who Jesus was. But long before Zacchaeus went out to seek Jesus, Jesus had gone to seek out Zacchaeus. Isn't that exciting? Before we ever had any inclination to look for Christ, and before we had any inclination ever to search after God, God was searching for us by sending His Son, Christ, came to search us out. He came to seek us out. Remember, that's why Jesus came to Jericho in the first place. Zacchaeus got all excited when he heard the news about Jesus coming. He wanted to seek out who Jesus was. But the reason why Jesus came to Jericho was to seek out Zacchaeus. It's one of the reasons why Jesus was going to Jerusalem. Why is Jesus going to Jerusalem? To die for Zacchaeus. It's one of the reasons why Jesus was born. Jesus entered this world to go and to save Zacchaeus, it's one of the reasons why God determined before the creation of the world to send His Son into the world. All for Zacchaeus. And if we can see the parallel between Zacchaeus and us, all of these things are true for us as well. That before we ever went to go look after Zacchaeus, before we ever went to go look after Jesus, Jesus came looking for us. Salvation is the work of God. Jesus undertakes this work, undertakes this mission by divine initiative. The Son of Man, Jesus the Messiah, came to seek and to save the lost. Now, I don't have time here. Write this down, though, and read this this afternoon or sometime this week. Go read Ezekiel chapter 34. It prophesies Jesus' mission of seeking the lost. Okay? It's a great chapter. Also go back and read through Luke chapter 15 again. The three parables that Jesus gave. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the prodigal son. All three of those parables illustrate our commentary on verse 10. We can see Jesus' nature, his mission to seek and save the lost. Now, one of the things that I have loved about preaching through the Gospel of Luke is that it gives us along the way snapshots of the Gospel. Again, last week the blind man, this week Zacchaeus. It's almost to me like looking at a diamond from different angles, right? The diamond is beautiful no matter which angle you look at it from, but each time you look at it from a different angle, you get a different glimpse of the beauty of that diamond. Zacchaeus is like a different, it's like we've turned the diamond a little bit more, and we've seen the gospel from another perspective. The reason why I love this story is because it's again a reminder of our own story. The details are different. You may not be a Jew. You may not be a man. You may not be rich. You may not be a chief tax collector. You haven't climbed up a sycamore tree to see Jesus. You haven't hosted him in your home. But you were just as sinful as Zacchaeus was. You were just as lost and headed toward destruction as Zacchaeus was. You had just as much need for Jesus as Zacchaeus did. And by God's grace, Jesus came seeking for you just as he did Zacchaeus. Jesus saved you just as he did Zacchaeus. 
You've repented of your sins and you trusted Christ by faith, just as Zacchaeus did. And you have the same hope and joy today that Zacchaeus did 2,000 years ago. What Jesus did for Zacchaeus, he did for you. He came into this world. He lived a perfect life that we have failed to live. He submitted himself faithfully to the Father. He obediently fulfilled all the Father's plans for him. He died on the cross. He was raised from the dead just to save us. So reading this story is like looking into a mirror, looking at our own lives and seeing what God has done for us. So let me encourage you this morning to be in awe, stand in awe of God. Give praise to God for His grace in saving us. Let us give evidence of true repentance and true faith in how we live as a result of salvation. Does your life reflect that transformation that we see in Zacchaeus' life? And let us join with our Savior. Jesus continues to fulfill His mission. He continues to seek and to save the lost. He has entrusted that mission to us. He has given us the power of the Holy Spirit to go into the world, to be His hands and feet, to share this gospel message so that he can keep saving people just like he did Zacchaeus. Let's pray. Lord, what a great story. And not just a story, Lord, that thrilled our heart, but it's the truth. It really happened. In a moment in time, you entered into a particular city. You talked to a particular man. And you changed his life specifically. And radically to illustrate your larger mission of coming to seek and save the lost. We thank you, Lord, that this real event is an illustration of what you have done for us. And so I pray, Lord, this morning for your people that we would glory in the salvation that we have received in Christ, that we would be joyful, Lord, at what you have done for us, to consider that we were lost, we were headed for eternal destruction that we were separated from you and from relationship with you, and to see that all that has gloriously changed because Jesus came and died on the cross and was raised again from the dead for us. Thank you, Lord. Help us to be as joyful as Zacchaeus. Help us to be as repentant as Zacchaeus. Help us to be as transformed as Zacchaeus. To examine every aspect of our lives, Lord, and to consider how we will faithfully serve you in this life that you've given to us in the context that we live in this world, Lord. Help us to be faithful. Help us to be good stewards. Help us to be witnesses, Lord, for you. Lord, I pray for those that are here today that don't know you. And perhaps you've brought conviction upon them, Lord, because of this story. I pray that they would do as Zacchaeus did. That they would come to you in faith. That you would bring salvation to them as they repent of their sins and trust in you. This glorious news that you came to seek and save the lost is just as much for them as it is for anybody else. May today be a day of salvation for them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.